welcome to North Philly. You know what I mean? An eagle <laughs> passing through, just passing through, gets jumped and murked and left for dead on a roof. You are listening to Urban Wildlife Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, with co-host... Tony Crow's Dale. And frequent guest co-host... Michael McGraw. And today we're going to talk, uh, among other things, we're going to talk about wildlife in airports. Uh, we came across a few of these stories, and they seem to go together, uh, about how... I mean, yeah, we got, we're going to talk about some of the challenges of wildlife at airports, but also how airports can provide habitat for wildlife in funny ways you don't think about. Before I get to that, I'll say a few quick reminders... First, um, if you want to get in touch with us, email us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at herbwildlifecast and find us on Facebook. Really easy to find us. And if you want to Google us, there's really not many urban wildlife podcasts out there. Um, we're pretty easy to find. Please, if you like the podcast, please rate us highly on your podcasting app of choice and tell all your friends about it. Um, social media is great. Like, person to person is great. Whatever gets people listening to the podcast, we are in favor of it. Before, before we even get to the airport topic, we almost had to ditch Tony for this episode because Tony had a, we'll almost call it a, an urban wildlife emergency or urban wildlife urgency. Tell us what happened, Tony. So, well, depending on how this goes, we may just play um, Officer Check's recording of the incident. Officer Check, what did we just do? Well, I was checking fishermen up in the Wissahickon, and uh, my friend Tony Crowsdale called and said that there was a bald eagle on the roof of a building. So um, he got back to me, and then we uh, went over. Uh, he accompanied me to uh, the 3600 block of Richmond Street, where a witness had seen two bald eagles fighting, and one killed the other one, and it landed on a roof. Uh, we arrived, confirmed it was on the roof. And had fire department, Philadelphia fire department assisted us with a ladder to uh, uh, go up on the roof. Uh, ladder 10, thank you guys. And we recovered one adult bald eagle, uh, unknown sex at this time. Uh, it'll be taken and put in the freezer and then turned over to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to go to the bald eagle repository. All right, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll be interviewing you and your wife, Erin, who are the dynamic duo of Philadelphia Wildlife Conservation officers at some point. Cheers. Okay, um, but set it up for us though. Yeah, well, it's funny because Mike's here too. Cause he's kind of, he's involved with this too in a, in a weird way. I'm um, sitting at my desk, you know, organizing awesome wildlife experiences that I will be sharing with the public, and I get a a text from. An old friend, Paul Romano, um, if any of you like metal, he's a guy that does the Mastodon album covers and lots of all these other great stuff. He also did Rambo's album cover, and so he's this amazing artist. That's how you knew Mastodon, right. And he writes to me, and he was like, hey, I saw a bald eagles fight, and the one died, and it's on the top of a roof of Port Richmond. And in Philadelphia, it's like... Of all neighborhoods, is that happening? It's like Port Richmond. Port Richmond is an old row house neighborhood on the Delaware River. Yeah, it's definitely hard scrap. Polish, Polish working class neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. And now, now I guess it's like more. It's probably a lot, a lot of Puerto Rican, 
community. But it's also sure. good. You get yep. some really good food there. It's also getting you know? gentrified. Yeah. You can so get like beans and rice. It's super and chicken. Now. Yeah, you could probably spend fifteen bucks on a cheeseburger now too. Right. You know, it's crazy. It's kind of a weird thing. But this area, this is a, this is still like when we went to the site. This is still like literally like crack pipes and stuff on the ground. Yeah. You know, and the and my parents grew up right there too. It's hilarious. Past their past my grandparents' house on the way there. But anyway, so um, I contact Jerry Check, Officer Check. <laughs> I've known Jerry for since I was a little kid. Well, not little kid. I, I knew Jerry since I was like fourteen or something, right? His and. Uh, so, but he's the game commission officer for Philadelphia. So I was like, dude, there's a bald eagle dead on the roof. And he's like, is it real? And I was like, yes, yeah, confirmed because I, I, had, I even had a photo, you know. Yeah. Um, so, and he's like, okay, well, let's go get it. And we should make note that this is an adult bald eagle. Yeah. And right now, eagles are well into the breeding season. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so when I saw the picture initially, I was like said, talking to Mike about, oh, here's where Mike comes in. Where his friend... Well, you tell me your side of things. Okay, so I have a friend, Darla, who runs a sculpture gym in Port Richmond, where Paul works. And she sends me a, a text message like, Hey, Mike, uh, it's been a while. From our studio, we, uh, a colleague just observed two eagles fighting and one fell to its death. You know? And I'm like, okay. okay. She's like, what should we do? And I'm like, well, don't touch it. You know? And the first thing I did was think to text you, Tony. So I sent a note to Tony like, yo, um, there's a dead bald eagle on a roof in Port Richmond. Um, do you have the phone number? Do you know who the Philly game warden is? And so he, instead of responding with any language, he sends me a screenshot of his text message from Paul, which is identical. And they're back and forth. And another screenshot of the email he's already prepared to the game warden saying, hey, there's this bald eagle. Let's go get it. You know? Yeah. So that's how we're both connected to yeah, it's this. it's hilarious. It's just nice to know that even in a big city like this, when wildlife things occurred, you know, me and you were the first people that people go to. <laughs> it's true. It's so <laughs> true. Um, but and, how does the... How, so this back up a second. Why would a bald eagle kill another bald eagle in midair over Port Richmond? Well, uh, so Port Richmond's right next to the river. Right. And eagles fish, right? The other thing is that there's an island in, in the Delaware River right there. Petty's Island. Island and... Bald eagles nest on that island, so my well, get- technically they used to nest on the island. I did a long-term bald eagle monitoring survey of that group, that pair of eagles. Geez, back in two thousand and five or so, over ten years ago. They moved to the mainland, and they yeah. So the the reason I was on that is because my company that I worked for at the time was hired because a prior consultant set up a blind too close to the nest. Flushed the eagles, they abandoned their nests. So that guy got sued and arrested and all kinds of stuff. We were hired to come in and take over. And so they reestablished their nest in this little freshwater um, embayment. So they're, they're in a tree that's technically in North Camden. But they often perch on the island and fish from the island. And so. they also come all the way over the Philly side. Oh, easily. I mean, as the eagle flies, it's nothing for them to be in Philadelphia. Yeah, know? so people are always like, there's a famous eagle pair in Pennypack Park. Which is not, you know, not that far away, right. and everybody's assuming it's that is the one of those eagles, and I'm like, no, it's probably one of the Jersey eagles, and the other eagle. It so, could be a conflict between those two. It, yeah, it could technically. Be. What I what I guess is is it's late March. Eagles are migrating north. Right. So my guess is the eagle is an unlucky eagle that's like migrating up to Maine. You know, happens to get find someone over Philly, get jumped by this pair. 
right. you know, and it, and, it, and it dies. Or it could have been one of those pair that got killed by the main eagle defending itself. And I hate to anthropomorphize because I, I see the ration in the life history. You see bald eagles both in pair bonding where they lock talons and crash to the ground, but also I've seen doing that bald eagle monitoring survey of the Petty's Island animals, often we'd watch them gain elevation rapidly and chase another eagle that's in the sky literally thousands of feet up a mile away. They'll get on, they'll notice it and get up in empowered flight, get all the way up and meet that animal thousands of feet in the air and fight them. Oh, but, I mean, the I don't think that they do talon locking this late in the season. I think it's earlier on. Yeah, exactly. But it's the pair bonding, but it's yeah. just showing the aerial, yeah, you know, but combat. And- eagles, that, eagles that do the talon I mean, if they if they fall in the river or they fall, they like, could drown. Or yeah, but this fell, if they fall on the roof, then they could obviously die. Yeah, clearly. But in this eagle, a it's probably way too late in the season for them to be doing that behavior. This was likely combat and not yeah, air bonding. The thing yeah. that clutches it is that it has it had feathers from the other eagle on its talons still. Did it really? Yeah. Holy, yeah. that's amazing. So, so how yes. Does it, so, so how does a bald eagle kill another bald eagle? Just talons like gripping and hitting the right artery or something like that? And they dive in, and you know, with power. Well, you should remember that all perching birds, they're at rest. Their talons are shut. It takes energy to open them. So at rest, they're closed. They're pinched shut, right? So um, if you've ever been really close to a bald eagle, you'd notice I got some pretty serious Irish fighting meat hooks as hands, and an eagle's talon it looks quite similar to my hand. You know, I mean, it's a decent sized. Yeah. Yeah, I mean they're. If I use my three main fingers, I mean, that's their talents. I mean, it's yeah. pretty serious. So, you know, if if they puncture any vital portion of another animal, it's toast. Yeah, yeah. You know? Like, for instance, like a harpy eagle, which is like a third bigger than a bald eagle, their talons are big as, are bigger than grizzly bear talon, uh, claws. That's ridiculous. <laughs> that's absolutely ridiculous. Wait, all right. And so, hold on. Before we pass on, I can't yeah. help but, I think it's hilarious. I can't help but anthropomorphize a little bit that, like, Welcome to North Philly. You know what I mean? An eagle <laughs> passing through, just passing through, gets jumped and murked and left for dead on a roof in like Port Richmond. Like, like that little robot. What was yeah. that robot? They were, yeah, yeah. It was yes. like my, there was this thing. Someone had this this idea which they were, they were taking this little robot thing and dropping it off in different, or asking people to tort it. Or, yeah, it would hitchhike with you. It, it would hitchhike hitchhiked all you. over the country peacefully. And, like, and it made it to Philadelphia where someone just smashed it to bits and, and that was the end of the robot. Yeah, um, it, it made its way to Philly where it promptly died. Yeah. yeah, Philly's rough like that. Like, dude, doing a bike tour, get to Philly, his bike gets stolen. It's so terrible, <laughs> right? You know, it's just like we shouldn't laugh about it. But it's that, horrible. When that robot got destroyed, I was, I was, part of me was like, well, it was a stupid project, anyways. But it was successful it, it all over the to country. Get beat up. <laughs> well, that's because you got Philly in your blood. <laughs> I, mean, I think deserved it. It's rough. Like Philly's the poorest of the. It's the fifth biggest city, and it's the. Yeah. I think it's the poorest of the top ten. It is. Yeah. yeah. Definitely, yeah. yeah. With that in mind, please visit Philadelphia. It's a wonderful place to visit. It really you is. You probably yeah. won't get killed in midair and dropped on a roof in Port Richmond. Right. And if you want to connect with us, we can give you some tips to where to see wildlife alive. And you can connect with some burly, working class, badass, super friendly wildlife biologists like us. Yep. And enjoy this place. So, with that, let's get to the topic of the evening, which is airports. And, you know, we, we invite Mike on the podcast because he knows a lot about a lot when it comes to wildlife. But when we were cooking up this one, Tony's like, no, no, he does this for a living, airports. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, he has a cert, don't you? And 
we actually like a real cert, not like one of those fake certs, like a nonprofit made up to make money that yeah. you get stuck with doing. No, I got, but, yeah, it's but, a federal qualification. So we were, we actually were, you know, we were scheduling this, and we had to wait like a week to schedule it because tell us what you were doing. I was in Hawaii conducting a wildlife hazard assessment at at an airport. So what is what does that mean? What is a wildlife hazard assessment at an airport? All right, so I guess it starts with um, the process. So any in within the United Philly, States, the process. <laughs> Within uh, the United States, and there's other countries that adopt the same philosophy, the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, they are responsible for regulating activities at airports. And that's everything from, like, basic safety, you know, runway condition, um, all, you know, everything under the sun. But one one important subset is how you manage your space um, and mitigate for... Uh, potential wildlife strikes with airports. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, or with airplanes, yeah, of course. So um, any airport that is considered Part 139 certificated, that means that they get FAA funding in any way, shape, or form. And FAA provides a lot of funding for a lot of airports for um, improvements. There's something called the AIP, the Airport Improvement Program. Okay. It's a grant source where federal funds are used to improve safety and operational efficiency at airports. Yeah. So, like, after 9-11, everybody applied for AIP grant funding for security fencing. Sure. And uh, one of the spin-off benefits of that is we made sure that the security fencing meets the specs to keep white-tailed deer out, not just, you know, the, the crazy bomber guy. Got to be pretty tall, yeah. Yeah, yeah they got to be. So the, the specs for those fences are 9 feet tall and then 2 extra feet of angled barbed wire fence, so it's essentially 11 feet tall. Uh, and there's also regulations for how it either meets the ground or uh, is actually uh, backfilled into the ground okay. to keep coyotes and stuff and crazy people from digging under. Okay. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and there was continually problems with groundhogs yeah. um, burrowing around the runway and chewing through the, the wires to the runway lights. It's a major problem. Yeah. 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 In, in the Midwest, it's 13-line ground squirrels. And I've, <laughs> I've had airport managers out in the sticks. I love this. They call 13-line ground squirrels stripy gophers. <laughs> like oh we got them striping gophers I'm like okay I'll go Google that <laughs> at least some coyotes to take care of. <laughs> yeah right right so any airport that's ever received FAA funding and is Part One Thirty Nine certificated has to meet all the specifications in order to remain operational they can be shut down they can be fined millions of dollars daily if they're not compliant and part of that is how you manage your landscape for wildlife and how what protocols you have in place to mitigate potential wildlife strikes. Yep. And there's a long history of birds and deer and bear um, killing people from collisions with airports. Or with, again, How does a plane run into Sorry. a bear? You know, a bear that's in the feed on the edge of a runway. Uh, just okay. not, you know. Flipped you know. on the way in. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. there's... That's a lack of communication. Usually, that's at a small airport in Alaska or something. Yeah, yeah. Where there isn't an FAA tower right there, where somebody says, "Hold short, do a holding pattern in the sky while we send someone out to, you know, shoot pyrotechnics above the bear and scare him away." You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, so there's there's language in the Code of Federal Regulations for how to develop what's called a wildlife hazard assessment, yeah. which is a full calendar year of uh, biological investigations. It's scientifically driven. Largely, it's birds because birds Fly. occupy the three-dimensional <laughs> landscape exactly. Yeah. Um, but all, it obviously also takes into consideration mammals, big ones because they're a threat if a plane hits them. Small ones because they attract birds, right? They're they're what's called okay. wildlife attractants. 
So you do this study for a year. You develop uh, a series of reports during it, um, working with the airport to modify things to prevent stuff. And then that turns into a wildlife hazard management plan. And once once the management plan is finalized, that's part of the airport certificate. So if they don't do what's said in the wildlife hazard management plan, they can technically be shut down as an airport. Okay. Yeah. All right. So when you were in Hawaii, can you can you talk about what you found at the airport? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, I'm going to remain anonymous about the particular location because it's a current okay. project, and there are some uh, some conflicts with wildlife. Um, so like BJ Penn's always punch, punching geese. <laughs> Every time I see BJ Penn out there, I shoot pyrotechnics at him. <laughs> so Hawaii, it's like if not the most, it's the it's one of the most remote archipelagos island archipelagos on the planet so um and island biogeography 101 i won't bore us with all of it but um (laughs) speciation right so the the it's like many many thousands of years uh before a new species can occur at a location like that you know an island that's much closer to a continental mainland yeah exactly it's it it came it's a volcanic orogeny it didn't break off of a continental shelf so there's no mammals no non-volant mammals. You're a volcanic orogeny. Can you think of a volant mammal that might occur on a remote-ass island? If volant means flying, it then sure does. we're talking about bats. Or... Yeah, there's a Hawaiian bat. It's the only native mammal in the island, in the, the island archipelago of Hawaii. Yeah. Um, there's no reptiles or amphibians that are native. I mean, you native, can't yeah. end up on driftwood over 2,500 miles. It's a long way to go. monk seal. There are cetaceans and rad. There's rad aquatic <laughs> mammals, yeah, pinnipeds, and um, and because it's so remote, you can experience amazing shorebirds like the Hawaiian petrel or Newell's shearwater or wedge-tailed shearwater or laysan albatross. Uh, the list goes on. It wasn't bristle-thighed curlews. <sighs> bristle-thighed curlews, maybe. I don't know. I'll take your word for it. So a lot of birds that aren't that are migrant but don't fly great distances. They don't fly from Alaska to Australia. And there are some birds that do that. Pacific golden plover is the, the perfect example of a species that migrates across the Pacific, south, west, and then back northeast. Sure. So there's I saw them in Australia. Awesome. I've I see them in Hawaii every single time I go there because they're friggin' everywhere. Like Shorter doubts. They're are they pandemic, right? Just like osprey. Mm-hmm. They're all like on every continent or whatever. So eventually, a shorter owl, uh, more than one shorter owl, made it out to those islands many, probably multiple thousands of years ago. And now there's a there's a Hawaiian shorter owl, pueo, and it's a federally listed species. It's a it's a protected. And these species. are the the owls that kind of are the hairier equivalent. Sort of, they, yeah, yeah. They're the changing of the guards from di- diurnal to nocturnal yeah, behavior. They fly low over the marsh and pick off. Yeah, that's right. Small yeah. mammals, primarily. But, but Hawaii... how interesting, right? They must have evolved hunting. Uh, I would guess birds, ground nesting yeah. birds, because uh, you could say large insects too, possibly. But there's only one really large insect out there: the Hawaiian giant dragonfly. It's aptly named. Oh, okay. But they're often found in wetlands that are up on the slopes. So, um, you know, so, what's like nest do nest search in Alaska. I've, I've we flushed a shorter owl's nest. Really? They had owlets in there. Ah, that's adorable. Word. That's super cool. Yeah. So, um, so that's one example. Um, so the Nene, the, interesting bird. the state yeah. bird of Hawaii, yeah. is the Hawaiian goose. Nene, they're like this super cool version work? of a Canada goose, essentially. You know, it's a. Oh, come on. What's that? I said, does it whip? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
hey <laughs> um, and, and so there's other species like that, that they're the equivalents of birds that we have in the continental United States or are found in other places, but they've, you know, once they got out there, it's like, what am I going to do? And they managed to make sweet love and find a living. So yep. there's, there's a high percentage of endemism. Yep. There's a lot of birds out there that are found nowhere else in the world. Yep. And like the Hawaiian coot, the Hawaiian gallinule, the Hawaiian blackneck stilt. The koloa, which is the Hawaiian duck, which is like a miniature version of a mallard, essentially. And uh, so these birds are federally protected. They're in the lowlands, and they're in conflict that's with... That's where you put an airport. <laughs> that's where the airports are, is along the coast and lowland, typically. So, um, so there's some really interesting dynamics in Hawaii that I haven't experienced at airports on the mainland, as far as not just Canada geese and, and, and gulls, well, yeah, not just species that you could easily get a federal and or state permit to depredate as needed or harass. You know, technically, if you make a a, a nene flinch, you get out of your car and you fart and it flinches, that's considered take by federal law. You've yeah, harassed, you harassed this it under the under yeah. your species. Yeah, act. and yeah. I'm glad that 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 rule is as strict as it is. Um, but it makes for some really interesting dynamics when it comes to human safety risk, especially in a place where obviously air transportation is critical, right? I mean, these are it's a chain of islands that are more than two thousand miles away from the yeah. You were talking about the way you handle these kind of things is, is habitat modification, like yeah, I think that the so if you can't shoot the Hawaiian, let's say you have Hawaiian geese at an airport or even geese here, I mean it's a similar concept, right? Like, you can only shoot your way out of it to a certain Here's degree. the most important thing, yeah. and just a, you know, a preface here. I am a total tree-hugging naturalist. I love animals. I love to promote ecology, diversity. I do uh, permit. I'm, I'm totally permit, like I have the right. But I'm totally okay with, like, hunting white-tailed deer in areas where they're clearly overpopulated. Yeah. And, you know, things like that. But, uh, you know, to shoot animals for no good reason... I think is uh, not cool. So, um, and the federal law agrees, and all the protocols in place agree. So, really, the first way to approach wildlife hazards at airports is separation criteria. What is the landscape in and immediately surrounding the airport operations area? Do you have wetlands? Do you have um, a whole bunch of plant diversity that's attracting butterflies that are then attracting fly catching birds? Or, do you have um, whatever f- plant sources that are? Are you creating a food web yeah. that's essentially resulting in hazardous animals being present on the site? Yeah. And if so, how can you modify the landscape to make it less suitable for wildlife? Yep. You know, so you don't have to worry about killing animals. You just create a space that they don't want to be in. Okay. We're gonna flip that in a second to listen to two interviews um, that we recorded ahead of time with uh, experts about um, the other direction this can work, where airports. They're kind of a, I think you put it as a noxious landscape in the sense that, hey, airports need to occupy a lot of ground just right. to provide space for takeoffs and landing and all that kind of stuff and some buffer space around them. And they're not fun to live next to. And so the grounds, if the, if the grounds that they occupy are compatible with habitat needs of interesting species that won't otherwise mess with the plains or the runways, right. then they can make for interesting habitat that way. And then in another one about how the simple fact of an airport being unpleasant to live next to, at least in this case, has preserved habitat next to the airport. So we're going to start off with the, the first interview, hearing about the, the El Segundo blue butterflies that live next to LAX in Los Angeles. My name is Travis Longcore. 
I'm an assistant professor of architecture and spatial sciences at the University of Southern California, and I'm the science director of the Urban Wildlands Group, which is an independent nonprofit. Uh, El Segundo Blue Butterfly is a small, um, what we say, maybe a thumbnail or roundabout sized butterfly in the Lycenids, which are the blues, that has a restricted range to the dunes along the coast of the Santa Monica Bay. And then there's another population that's up farther north that is much larger and has been lumped in with El Segundo Blue but I'm not yet entirely sure from an evolutionary perspective how that would have happened, um, but it is currently recognized as such. So there's sort of a disjunct population, one Santa Monica Bay and the other sort of central California. They are closely tied to a single food plant, which is the coast buckwheat or sea cliff buckwheat, uh, Ariagonum parvifolium, at which they nectar as adults, lay their eggs, the larvae hatch, and, and go through their developmental stages in the flowers, and then they pupate underneath the plants. So it is sort of the essential home of the of the species and is uh, or subspecies. It's a subspecies. Uh, is is this one variety of buckwheat? Elsegunder blue was one of the first butterfly species that was classified as endangered uh, in the 70s. And the reason for that is that its known habitat at that time, which was the uh, Santa Monica Bay dune system only, had been largely developed, um, leaving only some small portions. And there were only a couple of known localities. And the population at the airport, which is uh, Los Angeles International Airport actually owns the property of dunes that used to be developed into homes, and then the homes were removed because of the sound and noise issues from the, the runways. And it was not in good shape there uh, for a number of reasons we can talk about. And then there were a couple of other locations along the bay that still had butterflies, but mostly it had all been developed into the you know, vibrant beach cities of, of uh, the Los Angeles basin. And so it was at a point where it would have been and continues to be actually at, at risk of extinction because of loss of habitat. So at what point did they figure out that they were right next to the airport? Well, that's always been its known distribution. Okay. And so there's no, there's no great surprise there. So we get up into the say the 80s, and there's a you know, sort of a semi-famous or famous among uh, invert people stories uh, or restoration people stories about this, which is there was the construction of a road uh, interchange where it was a ramp going up to another road that cut into the dunes, and when it was re uh, graded and planted. It was planted with a quote-unquote native seed mix. And the problem was that that quote-unquote native seed mix included species that were not in fact native to the El Segundo dunes in that location and had some species that were from the Channel Islands and had some species that were from the uh, other scrub type habitat in the Los Angeles area, including a second species uh, of buckwheat called the flat top buckwheat, California buckwheat, Ariagonum fasciculatum. And the problem was, and this was came out in a paper that was published by uh, Gordon Pratt, was that 
the other species that compete with Elsega and the blue butterfly, so the other uh, things that lay their eggs on and have their larvae develop in the heads of buckwheat flowers, uh, they, it turns out, could uh, lay their eggs on and survive and thrive on the California buckwheat. But Elsega and the blue butterfly can't. And so by having this other buckwheat that was growing and actually a little bit earlier in the season, it was sort of promoting the growth of a bunch of competing species, and the numbers of Elsa Gnubu butterflies were then very low because there was all this intense competition for resources on the heads of the, the seacliff buckwheat when, when they were growing. And so other species were getting you know, two and three life cycles a season, and Elsa Gnubu butterfly only gets one. And the interpretation of the data that were looked at at that time was that uh, because of planting the quote-unquote wrong plant, now acknowledging that Arianum fasciculatum is a native plant to Los Angeles, but it wasn't native to the dunes. And so it was introduced there, and there's actually another buckwheat that's uh, near there but wasn't causing a problem. Um, and so the first restoration actions that get taken out there um, at the at the dunes are to go in there and remove this California native that's exotic to the dunes and actually promoting the competitors of El Segundo Blue Butterfly. And that alone, going out and ripping out a species that would have been native five miles away uh, from the dunes is actually very effective at then uh, helping the butterfly to start to recover. And then it was simply a matter there was also a whole large areas of the dunes that needed to be reseeded because they had been developed uh, as residential neighborhoods that had been then abandoned, purchased and abandoned, the houses removed. It's a sort of a almost a legend in Los Angeles. There are people still alive who grew up in this neighborhood that's that's basically gone. Um, and uh, but it needed some help to get the seacliff buckwheat going again at those locations. So there was a starting. I get the dates wrong, but it was sort of the 90s, a effort to undertake a, a true restoration project that, that, that paid really close attention to the, including only the, the native plant species and, and none of the ones that weren't actually endemic to and, and uh, originally found there on the dunes. You just talked about how at LAX, I mean, you had a whole neighborhood relocated because of, call it noise mm -hmm. pollution, I guess. So talk a little bit about this, about how you find things that scare people away but it might be protective of plants and animals. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a real um, common characteristic. And I've got a whole list of these from from California of places. But the fact of the matter is other places in the world have found the same thing, where sort of ex-industrial uses are out in, in the U.K. are the only remnant habitats of certain types of ground beetles. Uh, and there's research on this around the world. But in, in California, we have a number of different examples. The El Segundo Blue is a great one. The noise of the Los Angeles International Airport sort of protects the dune habitat. The Palos Verdes Blue Butterfly, uh, despite it being in, still in very uh, dire straits uh, population-wise, its habitat was protected by being on a fuel depot that had uh, 60 million gallons of jet fuel underground. Uh, but the slopes in between were still native vegetation. Across the street was a big uh, refinery with uh, tanks and, and flares and, and literally, uh, you know, burning off gas while you're looking at a, a, a an endangered species right there, but protected by the local land uses. Um, Inland from here, in a place called Colton, there is a uh, a giant pollinating fly 
that is protected by sort of being a remnant habitat next to a cement plant and an endangered species that is emblematic of a particular type of inland uh, dune and wash system. If we go up to Northern California, we find uh, the Langs Metalmark, which is on a dune system along a river that's bounded on one side by a power plant and on the other side by a gypsum plant. And in fact, the National Rat Wildlife Refuge that's set up to protect it is divided in half by one of these land uses. And yet, uh, without those land uses, despite the challenges they might face, uh, might create for, for any number of these species, it is their presence that's kept these places from being developed uh, in, a, in a very high-value real estate uh, uh, place like California. You know, when you're talking about animals as small as a, a thumbnail-sized butterfly that can also fly, what does a meaningful landscape look like to them that might be different than what we would expect from a larger, let's say, a larger vertebrate or something like that? That's a good question. Uh, and sort of gets to the thing that I'm constantly asking people when they talk about connectivity, because connectivity is such an easy word to use, and people think they understand it, and they think that connectivity in and of itself is a benefit. Um, but I'm always asking, well, connectivity for what species? Uh, because some things don't actually need any help to be connected. Um, and other things you may think you're connecting, but you aren't because of how they perceive and move across the landscape. So, so here's the interesting thing. The history of Elsie and the Blue Butterfly was such that the research suggested that they only moved a very short distance within patches of deer wheat. And, um, and so we did a, st uh, a project down in the south portion of the Santa Monica Bay to restore, and it ended up being about four acres of sort of bluff and dune habitat uh, with the right food plants for El Segundo Blue Butterfly. And it was about 1,200 feet away from an existing remnant population that's in the backyards of some folks who live along the, the bluffs down there. And the research, you know, the maximum recorded movement at the LAX dunes suggested that, you know, this was not a distance that they were going to move. And it was over an area that uh, was really clearly non-habitat. And so when it was being set up, I argued, you know, probably if, if we're going to have an endangered species come to this site that's being restored, it's probably going to have to be brought by hand. And so... Imagine my surprise, the project happens, um, Habitat's uh, created, and a couple of years later, I think it might have been three, go down there and look, and lo and behold, here is uh, El Segundo Blue Butterfly. And some female made it up there and laid eggs, and as they say, the rest is history. And so that was, you know, think of it as it being a very long distance from humans, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 1,200 feet. Um, but for a little butterfly outside of its habitat, it made it. And there is some reason to estimate dispersion distances for butterflies because, you know, it's the ones that get away that you don't recapture, um, and that's uh, kind of tough. Um, but the other thing being that there is some evidence from uh, researchers in, in Sweden showing that older female butterflies tend to move longer distances than do younger ones. The idea being that a female will lay eggs where she was uh, hatched and uh, as an egg and developed through as a larva and it closed as an adult. Um, and then as she gets older, 
she'll then move out and disperse to other to other areas. And so that's uh, sort of a known strategy and probably what was going on uh, getting this uh, particular site uh, recolonized. How have you seen people, lay people, respond to endangered tiny butterfly in their backyards or in the, the lot across the street? Well, I have gotten really nothing but positive feedback. I take that back, maybe one exception or two. I mean, I've gotten people send me photographs of of a, a kid with a also going to be a butterfly alighted on their hand, which of course is is one of the beauties of this. If you don't know that it's an endangered species, you're not liable for <laughs> harassing them. Um, but I've gotten very positive responses. The negative responses we've gotten from some of the restoration work really came from uh, people who wanted a different aesthetic in the summertime. And I think that is a real challenge um, in that landscape should be green and they should always be green. The fact of the matter is native landscapes in Southern California are green some of the time and they're not green other parts of the time. And that poses a real difficulty uh, for people who are locked into the idea that it should always be the same way. It's a dynamic landscape. It gets exuberant when the rains come and it gets brown and golden when it's dry. Um, yeah. And that's kind of just part of the way it always has been. Um, and also probably more kind of the way of the future because of the need to manage water resources smartly. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, now's the time to grow to like uh, brown landscapes in, in the southwest. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And the thing is, it doesn't need to be desert, because Los Angeles isn't a desert. You understand and appreciate that the way they look changes throughout the year, and if you don't like the change, you can get pick plants that are more evergreen. And in fact, the food plant of uh, El Segundo Blue Butterfly is quite evergreen. The flower heads, though, change color from you know, sort of creamy white to um, brown, rust-colored uh, as they as they mature. Uh, but I, I actually find them to be quite pretty. So the, there's a lot in there to, to, to talk about. Um, you were starting to talk about doing restoration in the noxious landscape discussion. Yeah. Um, you were starting to talk about uh, the work you did on the landfill. Go ahead. Yeah, so just a striking similarity with a lichenid that has only one host plant. And lichenid is this, the group of butterflies that the El Segundo Blue is part of. Right, yeah. and these are part, this, this group is probably, the first butterfly you recognize when you're a small child is probably a lichenid. These little bluish butterflies that flutter around low in the grass. Yeah. Right? Like out here in Philly, the eastern tail blue is probably the most common. Which I've seen at like vacant fields in West Philly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we have some azures, summer and spring azures that are also yeah. quite common. But uh, so in the Albany Pine Bush Preserve, there is a city-owned and run landfill that it creates a disjunct connect. It breaks the connection between two sections of relict Albany Pine Bush Preserve. Okay. And what's the, Albany Pine Bush? The Albany Pine Bush Preserve are inland dunes. It's an inland dunescape. Um, huh. So uh, short of topography, the plants, the plant. Composition is very similar to the New Jersey pine barrens. Pretty amazing. Okay. 
Yeah, a lot of uh, so sandy soil and a lot yeah, of yeah, Quercus alyssifolia and, and Pinus rigida. So what are those? Come on, pitch pine is the Pinus, and Quercus alyssifolia scrub oak. There you go. All right, it's a fire adapted landscape. It okay. benefits from you know a fire regime of seven to fifteen years or something. Okay, and uh, so there's a particular plant called the wild blue lupin, Lupinus perennis. Okay, it's the only host plant for a lichenid called the Carner blue butterfly, which occurs in that area. Which is gorgeous. We're looking at pictures. Absolutely of yeah. gorgeous little butterfly. All these blues are gorgeous. We're gonna yeah. have, I'm gonna have a good time tweeting out the pictures of these guys. It helps beautiful. to get real close to them because when you're walking in the field, you just see a little flutter, a little flash of blue. Yeah. Just the way that like birding gets next level once you start looking at birds in binoculars instead of just looking out your window. Yeah. You know? um, butterflies are amazing, and these are particularly gorgeous animals. Um, but uh, so we did a restoration project that was part of mitigation for a landfill expansion. So, and the total noxious landscape. I mean, there's a city-run landfill. There's trash blowing. It doesn't and, get more noxious. You know, yeah, that. like, you know, there's, you know the, if the wind blows the wrong way, it stinks something awful. And yeah. there's always diesel, diesel engines running, compacting, and dumping trash. Yeah, yeah. And, so anyway, everybody should look up the Albany Pinebush Preserve. Go to their Discovery Center. It's a super rad, amazing place. Yep. It's a globally imperiled landscape. It's surrounded by city. Most of it's already developed. And if so you're ever like, why the hell do I have to go to Albany, which is how people usually react, yeah. now you can say... Yeah, to go to the Pine Bush. Because it's super rad. There's yeah. hognose snakes and smooth green snakes and super Ooh. rad birds. Oh, we got to go to hang out with... Hooded warblers and prairie warblers breeding there. Like It's an amazing landscape. Games. Yeah, go hang out with a phenomenal worldly naturalist who is also one of the best bartenders I've and ever met. Maybe at night we'll see some fisher cats. We can. I've the only fisher I've ever seen were in the Albany Pine Bush Preserve. There you go. They're there, yeah. and I've seen DORs on the roads there too. Sadly, oh. just to round out the whole noxious landscape and totally tied directly. It's, it's so yeah. similar, being that it's a you know it's another lichenid that is entirely host specific. This animal was. Uh, threatened and uh, the type specimen from the guy Carner or whatever this German naturalist collected a, an animal from the Albany Pinebush Preserve hmm. they're quite common in Wisconsin in fact the entire state every resident in the state of Wisconsin has um a uh, incidental take permit essentially so like if you if you're roaming over mowing your lawn you're not going to be gonna fine violate the, the, exactly you're yeah. not in violation but it's a big, big deal still in New York. So there you go. Um, and just to say, we were just joined by Walter, who is AKA Jinx, Mike's uh, Mike's kitty cat. Oh, I trash picked this cat. Yeah. yeah so you this did. is a this is this is when people if people ever accuse us of of cat hatery or cat hating. Just I want to point out, burly biologist over here, number one. Really, the term we should say is rescued. I like trash picked, but yeah, I okay. like trash. Trash picked a stray cat while we were moving me in West Philly to West Philly. We were moving it like two blocks, and and Tony's like Mike needs a cat, and and rescued him a, or trash picked him a cat that, and so so although we feel very firmly that where should cats be, indoors, indoors, in soup. Oh wait, indoors, no. <laughs> indoors. <laughs> that that as much as I am an allergic person to cats, and so I'm not a cat person. We're sitting here, you know, two out of three of the, the dudes in this, this podcast right now are very much cat people. They love cats. They just don't love them outside. Yeah, um, and, and when I was hanging out with Officer Check, we, we had been, you know, feral cats are a problem when it comes with my line of work. I was talking to, to him about it, and yeah. he, was like, he was like, I have two cats. I love my cats, but they're a problem. If yeah. in the wild, you yeah. know. We will, we will continue our cat discussions another time, but I, I always like to point out that 
That we're, we're this is a cat loving bunch collectively. Yeah. And the reason and, why I like say that I trash picked this cat rather than rescued is because like I guess yeah like we we maybe we rescued this cat from getting run over. Right. 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 But getting like, killed by a dog or whatever. Yeah, but I, like, dude, three days after this cat was in my house. I walked past the abandoned lot next door, and a cat that looked exactly like this cat <laughs> was just trotting all proudly with a house fire dead in its mouth. Oh my god! You know, and it's probably yeah. related to you know, this we cat. We rescued you know? the wildlife from this cat. Yeah, we. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. it. We we pro- we likely at least once a week we're saving a bird's life. Yeah. From taking one cat off the streets. But the thing is, is I understand the people who call themselves animal welfare people. I understand why they say it's rescued, but. They're not rescuing animals as a whole because they're taking these animals in. And well, you're talking about the food chain aspect, and they're so, killing yeah. other animals to feed them. Right. I'm not, and, and, so, I'm, right. and I'm not getting into that. I'm, yeah. just, I'm just saying, that, like, just you're right. A, that's a why I'm saying. That's why I don't call it rescued. I call okay. it trash picking. So yeah. trash picking. Right on. It's like you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, this was a. But this these was, are these are men who who love cats and, and have and cats. In their I must lives. say that yeah. this is Tony. Anyone who knows Tony knows that this isn't a surprise, but this man exudes love. Like, not only did he trash pick the cat, but he ran out and bought litter and a covered box. He bought me a whole setup to bring it. <laughs> and was just like, here, here's a cat and a full setup, you know? It, it is, was awesome. It is. A, that cat's a sweetheart. She's a sweetheart. My kids love her. And I mean, she's still... That's also one of the reasons. She's, she's got gangster in her blood. I mean, she's a phenomenal mouser at that house in West Philly. Out here, we don't have a mouse problem, or we haven't had one, but... Uh, she, I mean, she'll jump out and attack your legs here and there, but like, it's always, she doesn't make you bleed. You know, she's, she's just well, a little gangster. Well, the know? thing is, is when Mike was living with me, when his daughters would come by, they loved my cat. They loved oh, yeah. my cat. So, and I mean, the most I loved Mike, I was also thinking of but his girls in the cat. And dude. So clearly so sweet. The, the girls absolutely love the cat. The cat, you know, when the girls are here, even though they have their own bedroom and their own beds, they always want to snuggle with daddy. Which is about half the time now, which is good. You know, as soon as we lay down, the cat immediately hops up and has a spot right next to Layla, and Layla falls asleep petting. Oh it's my the best. God, yeah. It's the cutest thing in the world. Yeah, it's unreal. All right, so with that cat tangent aside, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going. Let me say one more thing about the light cadence. So, I'm, so for this rest, this was an ecological restoration project, highly vetted. Our company was the only ones qualified to really do the work. We're basically restoring dunes, all these Are native you communities. To say what your company is? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it's Applied Ecological Services. It's an ecological restoration firm. And uh, so... I got to take my girlfriend to one of our favorite places. Well, not to take her. We walked together to one of our favorite places. She's like, I love love the docks by the river. And she's like, this is my favorite one. I was like, oh, yeah? Read that sign, baby. Yeah. Who did that work? Nice. (laughs) Tony's referring to the Washington Ave Pier, which is a a spot that... Pier 53. AES Applied Ecological Service uh, designed and built to rad little... Ecological Oasis in South Philly. It is very rad, yes. Thank you for plugging that. I love that project. Um, which actually has a whole bunch of rad stuff. you know. The f- and we had you on the podcast talking about it, and we are talking about the skinks. Five-line skinks. Oh, Pier 53. Nesting red belly turtles. Now they're nesting? I believe so. They, I mean, I didn't confirm the nests. Nest? There's turtle nests on the site. We need to confirm species. We got scooters on them, you know? We probably should. I mean, but what do we have to worry about other than people? Rats? I guess rats. Yeah, that's a really good Raccoons? call. Raccoons? Foxes, coons. Yeah, there are fox right there. You know how there's. Okay. I remember a picture someone took that made like local news of a fox that had just killed a Canada goose at the Walmart parking lot. Yeah, and it was sitting there defending the goose carcass. Wow. From 
feral cats that were trying to horn in on it. Ridiculous. Well, yeah, there's that whole cat complex down there. I can show you where there's a a fox den right across from that cat complex. You know, less than 200 meters from the the pier. It's its own fun time. Man, we are really good at going from one tangent to the next. But go on. So, this project site, we, not only did we, you know, design and restore this area, working closely with NYSDC, the Albany Pine Bush Preserve Commission. Okay. Obviously, the, the the airport or the the landfill, which is our client, and uh, developed this rad restoration site. We got permits to collect. It was all native genotype. We collected like I think over 175 species of native plants from seed within a 25 mile radius. Wow! Yeah, and and you, we have a nursery on site where we're propagating all the most important pollinator species. So you know, the host plant is wild blue lupin. Yeah. Lupinus paranus for for Carnar blue and also another species, um, the frosted elfin, which the can also elfin. yeah, but the frosted elfin can also use wild indigo, um, so it's not one. It's, like it's only two. of pot. <laughs> yeah, right. They're, they're these gorgeous little uh, frosted elfins. There's gorgeous little butterflies. Not as pretty as well. Whatever. It's all speculative. It's yeah. in the eye of the world. <laughs> but um, anyway. Um, all these, you know, but the adults need the nectar, right? So you need yeah. nectaring plants. You need to make sure that through the phenology, as this gentleman had mentioned, multiple brood cycles per year yeah. promotes sustain a sustainable um, population. And you know, one year we've already had three broods in one season, which is phenomenal. Typically, yeah. there's two broods, but you got to make sure there's enough nectar to available at all for these the different adults, stages yeah. throughout the season for the adults. Exactly. So um, we. The, the areas where we planted a lot of blue lupin, um, you know, we were waiting for colonization. Now, there they have a captive breeding and release program at the Discovery Center. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just got excited. They were like, look, we know the habitat's good. You guys did a great job. We're just releasing butterflies. So they did. Um, so we didn't get a chance to see how long it would have col- been for colonization. Yeah, I think it was the year after we built the suitable habitat. They released butterflies. And now we have a robust population. So, nice. Yeah, very cool. Very interesting. Well done. Very, yeah. very connected. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to move to a, a larger kind of animal, and we're going to hear about the Irish hares of the Belfast Airport. Um, mm. I don't know if we mentioned it in this, 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 in the part that I included. They're also apparently in the Dublin Airport. So Irish hares like airports as habitat. We're going to hear more about that. Uh, I'm Dr. Neil Reed, and I'm lecturing conservation biology at Queen's University Belfast. Before we get into discussing what an Irish hare is, I guess I need to maybe tell you uh, more about the general family that it belongs to, and that might help. Um, so hares belong to an order of mammals called the Lagomorpha, and these include the familiar rabbits, such as the cottontails. They include the hares, which are what Europeans refer to um, as, as jackrabbits, and they include the much less familiar pikas, which live at very high altitudes in the Himalayas. So a hare is basically very much like a rabbit, but about four times the size. So they're really quite large beasts. And unlike rabbits, which typically the cottontails, they burrow or they give birth to blind and naked young. Hares, um, by contrast, live on the surface of the earth. They're cursorial, which means that they are adapted for running. They've got longer ears to hear their uh, predators coming. And they give birth to young, which are fully furred and ready to go. And the Irish hare is a specific endemic species that you only find on the island of Ireland. So the Irish hare is endemic to Ireland, meaning it's only found here and nowhere else on Earth. 
So that immediately makes it of interest to us because there are very, very few species that we only find on the island of Ireland. So we're very close to the island of Great Britain. And so we have a subset of the mammals that we find there. And Great Britain is very close to Europe. And so it has a subset of mammals that you find in Europe. So almost everything we have you get in Great Britain or Europe, with the exception of about three or four very special species which got here after the last glaciation, the Irish hare being one. So it's a truly Irish species. So it's it's a kind of flagship, iconic species that the Irish people like to identify with. So culturally, they're very important for the purposes of sport and hunting. And there's a great deal of folklore associated with them as well. Um, but biologically, they invaded Ireland after the, during the last glaciation. So they've been here a very long time. Um, they've separated from other mountain hares maybe 60,000 years ago, something like this. And so they have adapted to be very different from other hare species that you get in Great Britain and Europe. And the differences are that they're much larger. They're the largest of all mountain hare species, which you find all the way around the, the, um, the poles. Um, so they're about four and a half kilos. That's, that's a big animal. Um, they're very rustic brown in colour during the summer. They turn a little bit bluish grey in the winter, but they do not turn white in winter, which a lot of hares do because uh, they're trying to blend in with a background of snow. But in Ireland, of course, we have incredibly mild um, weather, and so turning white would be a big mistake. Uh, they typically have much smaller ears as well. Uh, they are behaviourally very different. They do not live in... Uh, high altitude mountains similar to other mountain hares in Scotland or the Alps or Scandinavia. Instead, ours live right the way from the seashore. So I've seen them swimming in the ocean right the way up to our tallest mountains, which in fact are not particularly tall. Our mountains are nothing more than hills. Um, but you get them mostly in grasslands. So they, they occur in agricultural grassy fields. What is good for a cow to eat is equally good for a hare to eat. They have historically undergone a dramatic decline during the 21st century. So because they live in um, grasslands, um, agricultural harvesting of those grasslands during the summer months where they are cut for what we call silage, which is uh, what we feed cows in the winter, uh, that basically destroys young leverets. So year after year, the population gets slowly eroded by these harvesting activities. So the reason that hares, particularly like airports and other urban areas such as golf courses, are very popular with them as well, is because they firstly are not subject to the same rigorous management as agriculture. So in uh, Belfast International Airport, uh, the grass is cut only once a year uh, and it is done so quite late in the season, maybe late June, early July, uh, whereas farmers will be harvesting their grass much more early than that. So young born in the airport get a chance to grow up to adulthood before the silage is cut. And instead, if there are being three or four cuts of silage a year, um, which would affect every generation of leverets throughout the summer, there is only one. Um, and also the airport being surrounded by a large fence, although it is permeable to wildlife, wildlife can certainly get in and out. It certainly deters a lot of predators such as foxes and, and buzzards, which might otherwise take young hares. Um, also, I suppose it is the case that because the grassland is managed less intensively than agricultural grasslands, there's a much more a great, greater variety of grassland species and herbs and plants that grow in the airport compared to agricultural grasslands, which are treated with herbicides and pesticides. And so there's a greater variety of food there as well. And so as a result, we have about 70 
Irish hares living at Belfast International Airport. There are about 130 live in Dublin International Airport, uh, and I often see them in the long-stay car park when I return on holidays. Uh, and we also get them in a, in a large number of golf courses as well for, this, for similar reasons. Um, and so how did you get into studying them? Well, I started um, by doing my PhD on Irish hares. Um, so I started in 2003. So there were questions over um, how quickly they had declined, whether the decline that we had perceived, whether that was real and what the causes of that decline were. Was it to do with agriculture? Was it to do with hunting? Uh, was it to do with invasive species? Uh, and so I started doing my, my doctoral thesis work on the species and I got bit by the bug and fell in love with them. And even though I've worked on a lot of different mammals since and a lot of different places, I always return to Irish hares and I've managed to continue doing Irish hare research uh, over the last decade. I imagine getting into an airport to do research is different than doing it um, in a golf course. Uh, what are what are challenges of, of studying hares at an airport? So getting into an airport can be challenging. You have to go through the same security protocols to get into airside access as you would do to get on a plane. So we have to, um, first of all, get special permits to go on. So we have to apply, go through security clearance, background checks. And then when we present ourselves to the airport, we have to go through all of the usual X-ray scanning machines, etc. Our vehicle must be inspected by popping the hood and looking at the engine. Uh, they inspect our equipment, etc. And we are then escorted. You cannot just drive anywhere on an airfield. Um, so we are escorted. And also we can only go at certain times. So Belfast International Airport is officially open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a very busy airport. But in reality, there are no planes that land between 11 p.m. on a Sunday evening and 4 a.m. on a Monday morning. And so it is only in that period that we are allowed onto the airfield and we're allowed then free access at that point to go. We, we can drive down the runway, for example, which is very exciting driving down a runway in a pickup truck. A truck. Um, uh, and as I said, we're escorted and we're closely monitored by air traffic control just in case there is an emergency landing that needs to uh, take place. So if it hasn't become obvious yet, someone in this trio is Irish. <laughs> it's not me. Tony, are you Irish? Partially. Okay. But... Michael. McGrath. Our, 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 McGrath. There you go. <laughs> our, our podcast Irishman. <laughs> yeah. yeah I no, I like that one. <laughs> I'm technically a very American South Philly slash Central Pennsylvania. However, yeah. there's a lot of Irish genetics in my blood. You were also appreciating the hairs. The hairs are sexy, sexy hairs. Don't be splitting hairs. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful. And, you know, as we were talking about island biogeography, right? There you go. Uh, this is an island that's super close to another, um, very close to a, co a continent, essentially. Yeah. So there's not, it's it's much more difficult to get endemism. You know, they're ve they revere the four species of endemic critters that they have yeah. where a place like the Galapagos or Hawaii yeah. had almost everything is endemic you yeah. know it's um, before introduction of other nasties but uh, yeah, yeah so so gorgeous animals um, and uh, the other thing that stuck out to me with this uh, presentation was the fact that the airport their mowing regime they only mow once a year yeah. Which is phenomenal, I think. Because um, really, why do you need to mow the grass at an airport? Well, it's a pretty important to manage your landscape. So that was a plus. And then the, the minus, as far as keeping 
uh, hazardous uh, animals that are potentially hazardous to fire safety. Groundhogs would love that. Well, yeah. the forb diversity. He's talking about how they have an increased forb diversity. Yeah, that's typically something you don't want to promote at an airport because it attracts not just lagomorphs, but also you know uh, all kinds of small mammals. You know, voles and shrews and all these other things that that eat. Uh, you know, if there's deer, whatever. I don't. Th- I don't know if there's. I should know if there's a deer and. Probably uh, some subspecies of deer out there. But, um, you know, uh, one of the biggest issues that we find at, air- at airports I work at is uh, the mowing regime. People love to mow grass. You know, there's a guy who gets paid to sit on a mower all day, every three days, you know, for yeah. the growing season. And, you know, he gets to smoke a cig or put on his headphones or sneak his little bottle of whiskey or whatever he's doing, just sitting on that mower all day. Yeah. Um, and so, typically, the grass is mown short, um, below two inches or below. And uh, when you cut grass low, it grows back fast. So you're creating this, uh, what do you call that? A positive feedback loop yeah. of what essentially is a when negative. Even at like four inches, it'll, it'll are. But you want it to go higher. So here, hold on, real quick. Let me just finish this thought real quick. The the protocol for FAA now they say and it's based on real easy science related to flock foraging birds. The height of your grass should be. Between the inch, between uh, eight and sixteen inches. It's pretty tall. Pretty tall, right? Yeah. There's two reasons why. Grass senesces; it stops growing rapidly after, when it's not cut regularly. So yeah. you you need to cut it significantly less. So you're not going to rut the ground, which creates little pocket areas for water or for invasive yeah. seeds or other yeah. seed species to colonize. You can keep a nice, clean monoculture yeah. that you don't have to cut as much. You're not disturbing the soil, essentially. Um, and then also think about flock foraging birds like European starlings or um, common grackles in migration, where there's literally thousands of them, and they're just bounding over each other in lawn areas foraging. If when they're on their tippy top of their toes looking up, if they only see grass, they will not land. They will not stay and eat because at all times there has to be sentinels. You know, individuals at all given times while birds are feeding. Other individuals have their heads up looking for predators. Right. They have specific calls. You make that call. Everyone knows the takeoff. Yeah. If you land and the grass is too tall, you're just going to pick up and keep going. Yeah. You're going to go find a, a more suitable space. Yeah. And uh, similar to the hares, that same behavior in the Midwest promotes phenomenal habitat for uppies, upland sandpipers, because they're taller and they do well in taller grass. And they tend to not get hit by planes as much. So they're a lower risk species. Oh, okay. You know, one or two breeding... If you have equidistant breeding upland sandpipers in a 500-acre turf, an AOA, an airport operations area, um, you know, that might be 10 upland sandpiper pairs. But um, the flip side of that, if you mow it lower, um, yeah, those uppies may not be there, but at least two times during the year, for a couple months, you could have tens of thousands of starlings. Yeah. And, you know, if one, one air, you know, it's happened before. Starlings took are responsible for one of the largest fatalities. Like 150 airmen, Air Force guys were killed by starlings getting ingested into a C-130 engine. Took oh, down a whole plane. Yeah, dude. I mean, it's real, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so that's pretty cool. And the, the hairs sound awesome, and that guy's accent is super red. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad we could talk and include that. That was, was a fun interview. Well, what I was going to say. Oh, go ahead. Oh, my bad. Tony. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. This is really important. Really? Is that so? This thing says really our <laughs> collective bromance is a positive feedback loop. Oh, it is. 
That's all I need to say. I agree. Okay. We keep building on each other. And it's Walter, come here. Walter, you're so beautiful and handsome. You don't have to harass a woman. It's like a girl, that. Tony. When are you going to accept that? Still Walter. I mean, a spade cat is only so gendered, you know? That's true. I'm done with calling Walter they. Let's wrap. I guess we'll wrap up. We've had actually a long discussion. Um, it'll be challenging to, to edit this, and I just might not. I might just leave this as a super long, fun episode. Make it a naked. Go naked. Go naked. I haven't well, thought of that. Unedited. Unshaved. Or unshaved. Unshaven. <laughs> I suppose that's a little more It'll just be a big ball of body hair and beard, um, which actually describes the three of us. We are going to wrap up and say, as always, we'd love to hear your stories of urban wildlife, airport wildlife. We actually, I'm going to say, our next episode, or two episodes from now, I think, we might do one odds and ends one, and then one about the cute furry animals that live upstairs, even though you might not want them to. I've got a contribution from a guy who, um, out of nowhere, contacted uh, contacted me from Perth in nice. Australia um, and contributed some observations of their Perth's urban possums. Wait, so, let me make one shameless plug. It's actually a, make a shameless plug. A Go double ahead. shameless plug. All right. So one, we just talked about airports. I'm an FAA qualified airport wildlife biologist. Yes, you I are. work all over the continent of the United States. For anybody listening has an airport that needs a wildlife hazard assessment, holler at your boy, please. I would be more than... And, and what's your firm uh, called again? And, yeah, the firm is Applied Ecological Services, www.appliedeco.com. There you go. Bam, thank you. So, um, with that, we're going to wind up. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. If you love the podcast like we do, and then we bet you do if you keep listening to it, uh, please rate us highly on your podcasting app or platform of choice. Please tell your friends all about it. Please tweet about it, post about it, snap about it, whatever. Oh, we got some feedback recently. Did we? I got a phone call from Tom O'Garian from Cupbank, Montana. Yeah. Who went on for 20 minutes about how much he loved the podcast. And then near the end of this conversation, and then we moved on to other things. But I'm not even, no exaggeration. He was going on and on about how he listens to it, doing like 100 mile Raptor surveys in Montana. I was say, he's a super legit wildlife biologist. Yeah, he was going on about how much he loves this podcast. He was going on and it meant the world to me. And then he slips in, like, a, I, I should like look at my phone and time it, because it was like about a half an hour conversation I had with him. And he slips in and he's like, oh, by the way, will you come to my wedding in, 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 in Oh, August? no, get out. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, That's awesome. uh, yeah, you kind of buried the lead there, buddy. Well, congratulations. <laughs> The Kate and Tom, yeah, two yeah. dear friends, two great, phenomenal biologists. Smooches, you wonderful. We love them, and people. I'm happy that they're getting married, and even more happy that they're getting married in Pennsylvania, where they're from. All right, so with with that, with that, with that, tell all your friends about it. Please feel free to get in touch with us with your ideas for episodes or topics or you name it, something you want to record and send us um, at urbanwildlifecast at gmail Tweet at us at Herb Wildlife Cast. Find us on Facebook. Until next time, thanks again for listening. Aloha. And uh, <laughs> I have a pasture of chest hair. I I went swimming with Tony, and I was like, dude, do you need a transplant? I got a garden. I got a, I got a little. I got a grassland for folks to. Yeah. I mean, just, right. I'm fairly hairy. <laughs> Billy's got us both beat, though. <laughs> yeah. I'm just showing a little patch, but yeah. Take that.